This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. How does science happen? How do we produce knowledge? How does something as complex as medical care actually become more effective? These are not questions we ask often during IRB meetings. They seem perhaps a bit too philosophical for the nuts and bolts kinds of discussions IRB members tend to have. But science is a constantly changing thing. The way we do science changes. The kinds of people involved with science look different. Its tools look different. We consider much different kinds of data important. So, it's a good idea every now and then to take a step back and think more broadly about where science is going, how it got there, and what kinds of fundamental changes or trends IRBs have been experiencing over the last decade. In this plenary session of the 2014 Advancing Ethical Research Conference, titled The Century of the System, Dr. Atul Gawande gives us a bird's-eye view of where we are and what role ethical review plays in our changing scientific landscape. Dr. Atul Gawande is a surgeon, writer, and public health researcher. He practices general and endocrine surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard School of Public Health and professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. He is also executive director of Ariadne Labs, a joint center for health systems innovation, and chairman of LifeBox, a nonprofit organization making surgery safer globally. Thank you all for coming to Boston and for inviting me along with you. Look, you're a really special group, and I, I love that you are in the center of seeing the knowledge change. All of the flow of how we learn, how we experiment, and then how we implement what we've discovered ends up coming in some way through you. And I can imagine what that, van I can't imagine what that vantage point must be like to see the swath of discovery happening across universities, across hospitals, across places out in the commercial world. This is such a great point, a front row seat to science. When I talk to people about what happens in an institutional review board, I often mention this. One of the most exciting aspects of the ethical review of research is being part of seeing where it is going in real time. This is why we are always talking about ethics, regulations, and how we are to make sense of them for people involved as researchers and participants. What Dr. Gawande has to say next is a great example of this. But what I can see as a non-expert, as someone coming to you as simply a clinician interested in, from the beginning when I started writing, just this question of how, how do I get better at what I do? And what does that mean for how we're all trying to get better at what we do? And what's fascinating to me is that there's been a change, there is a change happening in how we learn, how knowledge is accumulated, how innovation happens. And, you know, you can see it in lots of small examples. And I was thinking about one example, which I got to write about in my last book, which was how I end up learning how to take care of people who drown. The case series was published and it was based around developing a treatment for drowning, starting with a three-year-old girl who was in a small town in Austria. She had gone out for a walk with her parents, 
and she'd fallen into a icy fish pond. It was in the middle of winter, and this was up in the Alps. The parents had lost sight of her, and in a panic, dove into the water and looked for her. But it was more than 30 minutes with her underneath the water before they actually found her. They felt her foot, though, at the pond bottom and pulled her up to the surface. Not surprisingly, she wasn't breathing. They got her to the shore. They called the emergency services number, and the operator told them how to do CPR. They began the CPR. A rescue team arrived about eight minutes after that. The temperature of the child, when they took the first vital signs, was 66 degrees, more than 30 degrees below normal. She had no pulse, and most ominously, her pupils were dilated, indicating that her brain was no longer there. They transported her by helicopter, continuing the chest compressions and CPR the whole way, because no one wants to give up on a child. And so in the hospital, that was the same way they felt about it. And so they bypassed the emergency room and took her directly to the operating room. And in the operating room, they set her up on a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. Now that's not a small matter. You have to, in order to set up the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, you have to cut down over the groin, insert inflow and outflow lines into a pump, into the, into the femoral vessels there. You have to tie them in. You have to set the machine primed and pumping. It took about an hour and a half before they could actually start warming her blood adequately to get her temperature up about 10 degrees. You can't warm the blood, they explained in this article, too quickly or else you end up risking damaging blood vessels and, and other structures. So after about two hours, they finally had gotten to the point that the temperature was 76 degrees and her heart began to beat. So they kept going. Over six hours, they warmed her to normal temperature, 98.6 degrees. And they found um, that at that point, you know, the heart was going, and they wanted to see if they could get the lungs going. And so they tried to see if they could get her off the bypass machine and let her breathe with a mechanical ventilator. But her lungs were too damaged by the, the pond debris, and they were filled with all of the gunk that was down there, and, and they simply could not move any air through her lungs. Now, the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, they explained, is that, you know, it's a temporary device. It's not one that's meant to maintain for a long period of time. And so they needed to get another device down, and they got an ECMO machine, an extracorporeal membrane oxygenator, an artificial lung. And now to do this treatment, in this particular case, they needed to open the chest of the child, plug the inflow and outflow lines directly into the aorta and into the heart, and then they needed to unplug the other system, and you have, a, you have to have a way to, to transfer between these two systems. And so, you know, you're reading along like, okay, I'm, I'm remembering that. And then, so they got her to the point that they could switch her over onto this machine, which was now portable, and you could transfer her to the ICU. Over the next 24 hours, they then, every couple hours, would suction out the debris in the lungs and try to wash out. And then they found you could switch her off of this artificial lung machine and be able to have her breathe on a mechanical ventilator. The oxygen was just able to make it through the lining of the lungs as damaged as they were. 
And then over the next two days, they were able to gradually allow for all of her organs to come back. They took her back to the operating room to unplug the other machine, close the holes where the, the it had plugged in, close up her chest. They'd been able to allow nutrition to go into her gut, and her gut was actually starting to work again. Her liver, which had gone into failure, recovered. Her kidneys, which had stopped, came back. Everything came back, except one organ, her brain. But they kept going. She was comatose for a week. They decided to do a CT scan when they saw that she was not waking up, and it showed that her brain was swollen up against the limits of her skull. But it showed no dead zones. They thought it might be possible she could come back. So they did one more procedure, drilling a hole in her skull, placing a probe into the brain, and allowing them to monitor the pressure of the brain. And then after that week, monitoring the pressures, dialing the fluids and medications up and down to gradually try to relieve the pressure on the brain. After that week, she woke up. She came back to life. First, her pupils began to react. Then she began to breathe on her own. And then her eyes opened, and she was simply there. There she was. Now, two weeks later, she went home. She was still not who she was. Her speech was severely slurred. Her right arm and right leg were paralyzed. But two years later, they brought her back. They did physical and psychological testing, neuropsychological testing about her developmental ability. And it turned out she was normal. She was now like any other five-year-old girl. And then they describe a whole series of others that they'd been able to rescue this way. And it was revealing in multiple ways to me. It was revealing because it described the ex extent of our capability in medicine. We could bring people back from not having breathed, from having oxygen cut off to their brains. But it was also revealing about what was required to pull it off there was not a single new technology that they deployed. No single new drug. It was how you put it all together. And it was the complexity of, you know, for a day and a half, that child had her chest open. And if one team member had failed to wash their hands and let bacteria get into her chest on day one, that would have been over. And it was hundreds of people in the end needing to get multiple steps right in order to make this work. There's something behind this, and I think what reflects what's changing in knowledge. We have two sources of failure in anything that we set out to do, and I learned this from reading an essay about the nature of human fallibility by Alistair McIntyre and Samuel Gorbitz, two philosophers, thinking about where knowledge comes from. And what they pointed out is the two sources of failure in anything that human beings set out to do come from, number one, ignorance. That is to say, we simply don't understand the nature of the laws of the world and the principles that really govern what happens to us and what happens to the world around us. We haven't mastered all the knowledge of the world to understand how to solve every problem. 
And research has been our way to discover and close our gaps in knowledge, to overcome ignorance, and has been extraordinarily powerful, particularly over this last century. But the second source of failure, they point out, is a failure of ineptitude. They gave it a harsh name. <laughs> it was the idea that the knowledge exists, but an individual or a group of individuals fail to apply the knowledge correctly. And what's fascinating about this particular century is that we've entered a world where ineptitude has become as big a problem as ignorance. That is, our ability to execute on the knowledge of discovery, on the knowledge of what has been accumulated in the course of this last century, and how to put the pieces together and make it go right, is as much or more likely to be a cause of avoidable death or avoidable harm or avoidable suffering as anything else that we have. So to recap really quickly, there are two sources of failure in anything we do. Ignorance. We simply do not have enough knowledge about how the world works. Research can overcome ignorance, as it helps us move from partial to more complex understanding of things like radio waves, how bridges work, or medical conditions. And the second thing is ineptitude where we have a pretty good knowledge about something, we just do not know how to apply that knowledge. Dr. Gawande's suggestion here is that we now know quite a bit. We just do not know what to do with that knowledge or how to apply it well. One possible answer? Checklists. So how do we overcome that? What we're discovering more and more is it's science too. And you are seeing the consequences come through your offices as you see studies and efforts to try to harness how we overcome not just ignorance, but overcome ineptitude. And it puts a fascinating change and stress on many of our concepts of what science really is and who scientists really are. Making the system work has turned out to be of public health importance. We have more people, about half a million dead or disabled in the country after surgery, which is 10 times the number that you see in road traffic accidents. And so making the system work has become a deep concern, but it's incredibly complex. And what we ended up narrowing in on came out of the aviation world, which was the idea that there are repeated errors in the system and that you can weed it out by identifying what the most common failures were and then having people follow a checklist huge change in culture for surgeons to imagine that they have a series of checks that they walk through in the operating room. We focused on stopping infection, bleeding, making sure there's safe anesthesia, but above all making sure there's teamwork. A team who at the start of the operation introduces themselves by name, has a briefing about what the goals of the operation are, what the equipment needed is, how much blood might be required, a discussion, a conversation, a very scripted one, and then again a conversation about the plan for the recovery of the patient. It's making it an intention. It's the simplest form of a system. And, but when we deployed it, we tested it in eight cities worldwide, in Tanzania, in University of Washington, in uh, a crushed city hospital in Delhi. There was nothing on that checklist that was not proven, but it was could you put the pieces together? Is this science? Is this human subjects research? 
We had eight different opinions from the IRBs. <laughs> Plus our home institution. I had our poor principal investigator in rural Tanzania who doesn't speak English taking the damn city course. <laughs> I'm trying to coach him through it through a translator, <laughs> and he has no internet hookup that can handle the bandwidth. But this kind of research poses a lot of interesting ethical questions to review boards, like IRBs. Dr. Gawande outlines a few of these for us. The further part of it is there's, there's a deeper pattern going on here, and it's the democratization of once were elite methods of science and learning. These were the province of the professor. And that's not happening anymore. This is the province of medical students who have now put together a global research group that are doing dozens of studies now. The province of nurses who see data on their own screens and want to try ideas. It's the province of CVS coming to us, and now they do their rollouts as randomized trials more and more. The rollouts of, of, for example, whether to synchronize the medications that people are on so that they get them refilled on the same date. They do it in one community and then they pass it on and lo and behold, they're starting to publish these results and lay them out there in the world. When the Minister of Health in Mexico, who's now the Dean of the School of Public Health, implemented healthcare reform in Mexico, which happened to be able to implement it a few years before we did, they decided their best way to implement was through a randomized trial step wedge design so they could learn as they went along about what, how it should be implemented elsewhere. And lo and behold, they published these results in The Lancet. The democratization of our elite methods of science put huge pressure on our basic structures for how to ensure the ethics of what we do. And the fact that we are tinkering with systems in which we know that there are known levels of harm and are trying proven ideas but don't understand the proof of how you put it together. And so the concept of science and how you implement presses up against our core ideas. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.